thank you, Rich, and Happy New Year, everybody. I think Nicola told us how to start 2020 well. Did anyone pick that up? She said how to start 2020. For some of us, it might feel like that. It, it's still, surely it's 2020, because the last two years haven't really happened, have they? But I can assure you, it is 2022, and we trust this new year holds lots of good things. So Happy New Year to you in the room. Happy New Year to all of you guys watching at home. I assume there are multitudes watching at home, given the number in the room at the moment, but... Um, I'm sure we'll be able to return to something approaching normality soon. I hope you've all managed to have a good Christmas. Um, whatever the circumstances that you may have faced, I'm sure there were varying circumstances and changes of plans. Um, and also, and you know, I can't believe I'm still saying this, in the ongoing uncertainty that we are still facing as we head into 2022. Um, children, thank you for sitting so patiently and quietly I know I'm not as entertaining as Ben and Claire, am I? <laughs> Jedi, am I? I'm not as entertaining as Ben and Claire, am I? Do you want to? Shall I tell you a joke? <laughs> right. See if you get this. Okay. Some of you have heard this joke already. It's my favourite joke. My favourite Bible joke. My favourite other joke wouldn't be appropriate to tell here. Um, so we were reading it in the New Old Testament this morning. For those who are doing Old Testament in a year, today Genesis three and four. So the fall of man. So you know what happens. God comes and says, "What have you done?" And Adam says, well, it was the woman you put here with me. And then Eve says, well, it, it, was, it was the serpent. So what happens here is Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> huh? I'm not sure if the children got that, but you can spend the next half an hour or so pondering on that carefully. Okay, so... Happy New Year. Uh, I faced a bit of a defining moment um, just before Christmas. Um, it was a strange experience. I was, in, I was in Pizza Express up in London with my wife, Suzanne, and one of my daughters, uh, Sophie. We were in Pizza Express. And uh, I had ordered my usual, which is uh, the barbecue beef burnt ends pizza, Romana base, obviously. Um, for those who know what that means, it's, it's a bit bigger. And... Um, so the pizza had arrived, it was there, it was looking good. It really is a good pizza. It's a magnificent pizza. You've got to, if you haven't tried it before, you've got to try it. Barbecue beef burnt ends pizza, right, Pizza Express. Excellent pizza. I was sitting there really looking forward to getting into this pizza. But here's the thing, here's the defining moment. Even as it's sitting there steaming away under my nose, I found myself looking across the table at the salad that Suzanne had ordered and genuinely thinking, hmm, that looks really nice. I, I really quite fancy that, the salad, and Suzanne. <laughs> I've got to tell you, for those who don't know me, this has never happened. This has never happened to me before. And it was disturbing. There was a disturbance in the force. It felt like a paradigm shift. I also kind of felt a bit, I felt a bit like I was cheating on my pizza. It's all these conflicting feelings. Anyway, it was in that moment that I knew the world has changed. The world has changed. And it has changed, hasn't it? The world has changed. Who knows? Maybe it's changed irreversibly. Because we've, we've been through pandemics before in history. And if I might say, without wanting to be insensitive to anyone, if I might say, far worse pandemics than this one. But what tends to happen is that after a period of time, we do get back to normal. You know, things get back to normal. But we've never responded to a pandemic in the way we've responded to this one. 
Um, and a big difference is in the technology that we have that we're using today. We're using to talk to people in their homes today, which has been a wonderful blessing for us. But also it's technology that has enabled distance. And it's enabled not gathering together. This has never happened before in our society. And so in one sense it enables isolation. As much of a blessing as it has been. And I think these are things that are going to leave really deep scars on our society. The world has changed. And the church has changed. The church has changed. As you know, before Christmas we came to a really painful decision um, to not relaunch our Hazel Insight. Really painful that was. Um, and it wasn't in our, uh, you know, our hands are tied, a helpless kind of COVID has forced us into this kind of way. It's because we felt that's what God was telling us to do. But it's a big change and it's a painful change. But also our ability to gather has been disrupted. When we do gather, there are still many who are at home and not with us in the room. There are some who were in the church before COVID who are no longer in the church. And there are many who have joined in the meantime, praise God. But the church has changed. It has. And it's a time of change. And change can feel really unsettling and it can be really disorientating. Change can cause us, if we're not careful, it can cause us to shrink back and look inwards and forget the sufficiency and the power of the unchanging gospel. Change can cause us to take our eyes off the God who never changes. The God who, as we heard in today's passage that Rich just read, is a God of miracles and a God of multiplication. And we want multiplication, don't we? We really want multiplication. We, we want to multiply disciples who make disciples who make disciples. In that, in that regard, multiplication is far, far better than addition. And we praise God whenever anyone is added to the church. And whenever anyone is brought into the kingdom, that's the history of this church, just continuing to grow, seeing people added continually to the church. But we would prefer to see multiplication. We want to see multiplication to get our disciple making our number above one. And multiplication is a kingdom principle. It's what this, this whole series that we're doing in the Gospel of Luke is all about looking at the kingdom, the kingdom of God, how Jesus demonstrates and proclaims the kingdom. What can we learn about the kingdom? Multiplication is a kingdom principle. The kingdom of God is described in the Gospels as being like yeast that multiplies and multiplies through a whole batch of dough. And it's described as being like seeds, tiny seeds that grow and multiply and bear much fruit. And then we see again the, the principle of kingdom multiplication in this very familiar story we're looking at today of the feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, was probably more like fifteen to 20,000 people because it was 5,000 men that were counted but the other Gospels make it clear there were women and children there as well. So fifteen to 20,000 people. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine that sort of size of crowd. That's an enormous crowd. So let's dig into this story a bit and see what God has to say to, it, uh, to us through it at the start of this new year. So here's the context. Uh, the disciples have just returned from the mission trip that Jesus had sent them on, where he had given them power and authority to do the things they'd seen him do. So to drive out demons, to heal the sick, to uh, proclaim the kingdom, to preach the gospel. He had told them to not take any food with them, take no money, take no spare clothes. So they had to rely completely on God's provision. And evidently, it had been a good trip. Because it tells us in verse 6 of chapter 9 that they went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. 
That's a great line, isn't it? We would love to be able to say that, that we went out and we were just healing people everywhere. That seems like a pretty successful mission trip to me. And now they're back and they're telling Jesus all about it. And I guess they, they were pretty buzzing as they tell Jesus all these amazing stories. Oh, Jesus, do you remember, you remember when you did that? I did it as well. I did that too. It was amazing. And Jesus is probably smiling. He's proud of them. He's like, well done. That's really great. You know, you went out on your own and you still did the things. You believed in me. You trusted me. So they're probably really buzzing as they recount all the stories from this mission trip. But I'm guessing they were also really tired. Really, really tired. Because what does Jesus do? He decides to take them away to a remote place. He decides to withdraw with his, with his disciples, with his 12 closest friends to a quiet place, a remote place, to have some time alone, to have some downtime. That was the plan, but this huge crowd turns up. You know, probably not all at once. Probably a few people found out where they were, turn up, other people find out. Turn, but eventually this enormous crowd is there. They want to see more miracles. You know, they've seen Jesus do amazing things. They want more. They want to, uh, they want to see the fireworks show. You know, they want to see incredible things. They want to, they want to hear Jesus. They want, to, they want to find out more about him. Is he the promised Messiah? Could he actually be the one, the king that we're waiting for? And so the crowd turns up. But I imagine that the 12 disciples who are looking forward to a bit of downtime, they're probably pretty miffed. They're probably pretty disgruntled at this intrusion. They don't want the crowd there. They need to rest. They've just been days and days with people, ministering to them, giving out. They probably want Jesus to send these people away and protect their time together. But Jesus did what he does. He welcomed them. He welcomed the crowd. He had compassion on them. And he healed lots of people. And he preached about the kingdom. And it seems he preached a long time. He kept preaching for hours and hours. Because in the story, it tells us it's getting late in the afternoon. Late in the afternoon. The shadows are lengthening. It's starting to get dark. And Jesus is still going. He's still preaching. So the disciples come to him and say, send the people away so that they can go to surrounding villages and countryside and you know, find food, find lodging, because we're in a remote place here. Which sounds very sensible. Very sensible suggestion. Um, nice of them to be thinking of all, those, of all those people. Although, I do wonder, and this might be terribly, terribly unfair on the disciples, but I do wonder, given the context of the story that I've just described, whether they're actually looking out for the people or for themselves. Because you can kind of imagine the conversation between them as Jesus is speaking. It's like, he's, he's still going. What do we do? He's still talking. I mean, do you think he's going to wrap it up? Do you think he's coming into land soon? When is he going to stop? I mean, surely, surely he knows. You don't try to fit a whole sermon series in one day. Who does that? And, and I'm feeling really hungry. Are you hungry? I'm feeling really... I tell you what, if I don't get some food soon, I'm going to die right now. Right now. And he'll still be speaking. You can, you can kind of imagine the disciples may have been getting a bit agitated, given they're tired, they're not thrilled at the presence of the crowd, and so maybe they come up with a plan. Let's tell Jesus that the people need food. Because he seems to care about them. Lord, Lord, we think the people are hungry, not us. And we could keep going for hours and hours. I mean, we love what you're doing. It's great work, great work, by the way. Great preaching, I love it. But the people, people are hungry. As I said, that might be a grossly unfair depiction 
uh, unfair on the disciples. But what is notable, before we get to the miracle itself, what is notable is it obviously didn't occur to them that Jesus might do something here. That he might do a miracle, he might do something amazing, in spite of the fact they've just been on this mission trip, relying on God's provision, including food. Um, they've, just, they, they've seen Jesus do amazing things in his ministry already. They know the story from the Old Testament of the prophet Elisha and bread that multiplied to feed a hundred. And they know they've got someone far greater than Elisha here. And of course, they all know the stories. They're there in a remote place. They all know the stories about God providing manna for the Israelites in the wilderness over 40 years. They know about God's provision. But it doesn't occur to them here that Jesus might do something. But then isn't that just like us? Before we get too critical of the disciples, isn't that just like us? How easily we forget the sufficiency of Jesus. That we, we can see God move and provide in an amazing way in one set of challenging circumstances. We, oh, thank you, Lord, you've come through, that's amazing. And then we hit another challenge and it completely throws us. Our first thought is not, well, he'll do that again then. No, it throws us. We, we worry and we fret and we forget and we've got to learn all over again that basic truth that Jesus is sufficient and he's more than sufficient for every challenge that we face. And so just as a side note today, really, I, I would encourage you in all the challenges you're facing right now, uh, and there may be many, and in the things you're worrying about right now, and I'm addressing this to myself as much as anybody else, just take time to remember. To remember how Jesus has been faithful before he'll be faithful again to remember how Jesus has provided before because he will provide again and to know and trust that he is more than sufficient for whatever challenge you're facing right now and he just calls you to trust him just remember remember his faithfulness remember his goodness so Jesus response to his disciples is not what they're expecting at all you give them something to eat I mean I'd love to see the looks on their faces at that point, you give them something to eat. What? And of course, we know that Jesus used his disciples in this miracle of multiplication. He, they're the ones who actually distribute the food. We don't know exactly how that multiplication happened. I don't know if you ever thought about this. How did that happen as they're distributing food? Did they have kind of a chunk of bread and a chunk of fish in their hands and as they gave it out, it just never reduced? Or did it reduce and then grow again in their hands? Or did they keep going back to Jesus to get more? We don't really know. But what we do know is that Jesus used them. He used his disciples and he didn't have to. We know that Jesus could turn stones into bread. You know, the devil tried that with him in the wilderness and he wouldn't have said it if he didn't think he could do it. So in theory, Jesus could have turned the dust at their feet into food without any involvement of his disciples. But he doesn't do that. He chooses to partner with his disciples in this incredible miracle. But this is what we see throughout Scripture. We see it all throughout Scripture, that other than the act of creation itself, the sovereign act of God, God always acts through the cooperation of his people, which is mind-blowing when you think about it. The sovereign, almighty, all-powerful creator God who doesn't actually need anything. He doesn't need anyone. But it's kind of like he chooses to need us, which is a strange thing to say, but he does. He chooses to need us when he doesn't actually need anything. He chooses to partner with his people. And there are so many examples that you could point to. So one we've been reading about in, in the Old Testament in, in the last couple of days. He tells Adam right at the beginning, he says, Adam, you name, name the animals. And God could have said to Adam, look, that's, that's an elephant, that's a giraffe, 
But he doesn't. He said, you name them, whatever you name them, that's what they will be called. That's incredible power to give a creature, a created being over creation. Incredible power. He partners with him. Goliath, when Goliath is there defying the armies of Israel, God could have sorted that out in an instant. Just a lightning bolt would have done it. There you go. You're not so big now, are you? But he doesn't do that. He uses a boy called David. The, the walls of Jericho, you know, nobody pushes those walls over. Only God does that. But he causes people to march around Jericho for seven days and then seven times on the seventh day, blow a load of trumpets, raise a shout, and then the walls fall down. God does it, but he causes people to be involved. When he parts the Red Sea, he tells Moses to raise his staff and stretch out his hand over the water. God was the one who parted the sea, but he calls Moses to do his part. When Jerusalem was besieged by the Assyrians, and it looked like the game is up, you know, there's no way out of this. And then the angel of the Lord goes out and he kills 185,000 of the Assyrian army and rescues Jerusalem. Now you think, well, that's a sovereign act of God. He's not partnering with anyone then. Until you read in the story where Isaiah says to King Hezekiah, it's because you prayed. It's because you prayed that God is going to rescue his people. God decides to partner with us. He calls us to play our part in his purposes being worked out on the earth, not because he needs to, but because he chooses to. He chooses to. We might pray for God to move. Come on, Lord, do, do your thing. Move. We might pray for him to move, and he might be saying, you move, and I'll go with you. You give them something to eat, I'll take care of the food. You might be praying for someone on your blessed list. I hope you are. I hope you're praying for all the people on your blessed list regularly, every day. A friend, a colleague, a, a, a neighbour. And you might be praying something like, Lord, send somebody really good to witness to them. And he's saying, I'm sending you. I'm not sending anyone else. I'm sending you. You go and witness them. But I'm not very good at that. Yeah, but do you remember when I said that, you know, by my spirit, I'll give you the words to say. Do you trust me? I'm sending you. He calls us to play our part. And he won't do our part for us either. He does the supernatural stuff. But he does it through us, incredibly. He does it through us. He, he, he does it through our obedience. And he uses us, his people, as a channel for his supernatural power. I mean, could God have parted the Red Sea without Moses raising his staff? Of course he could. Of course he could. But he chose to use Moses. It's God who does it, not Moses. I mean, God does the supernatural. It. Moses is just holding a stick in the air. And he would have looked really silly if God hadn't done anything. But that's the kind of risk you take, isn't it? When you follow God's instruction, when you, when you obey him, Moses is going to look really silly holding his stick up in the air over the Red Sea and nothing happens. But, but God chose to use him in that way. He calls us to lay our hands on the sick for healing to come. It's God who heals, not us. But he still calls us to go and lay hands on the sick. That's the part we play. God's chosen to partner with his people to work through the cooperation of his people. So, as his people, let us also decide to partner with God and see what he is doing. What is God asking you to do? Think about what, what is the biggest thing that you need God to do for you right now? What's the biggest thing you're coming to him with and saying, God, I need you to, I need you to move here. I need, you to, I need you to do something here. But then ask him, what's my part? What do you want me to do as part of that? How can I cooperate with you? We don't do God's part for him, but he doesn't do our part for us either. Now I think in this story we see two key things. We see two key principles of how God's power can work through us. 
of how kingdom multiplication can happen through us. First of those principles is that we have to recognise our own powerlessness. We've got to recognise our own powerlessness. The disciples had five loaves and two fish to feed a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people. And it's, it's laughable, really. They would even articulate the idea of going and buying food for them. For 20,000 people. I mean, it's ridiculous. They don't have any money, and even if they did, they wouldn't have anywhere near enough. The reality that, you know, they're kind of floundering around, but the reality they must have reached is that actually they are utterly powerless to do what Jesus is telling them to do. You give them something to eat. They're powerless to do that. But that's the reality for us as well in whatever God asks us to do. God gives us things to do that we don't have the natural resources for. He tells us to go and heal the sick, but we're powerless. I can't heal anybody out of my resources. He tells us to make disciples of all nations. That's an impossible task for us because we can't even reach our own nation. I mean, who in our nation, in our society, our our pessimistic, cynical, sceptical, western society, who wants to hear about Jesus? We can't even reach our own nation. God's given us as a church a vision of being a diverse church of thousands that surrounds and saturates High Wycombe with the love of Jesus. We don't have the resources to do that. And especially right now, where we kind of feel a bit battered, a bit weak, bruised, tired. Kind of like we've got this massive crowd to feed and all we've got is a few loaves and a couple of fish. But this is what's really exciting. Because I think that is exactly when Jesus can use us. He can really use us to do amazing things. When we can't claim any of the credit for ourselves. When we, we can't point to our own power, our own competence, our own resources. All we can say is that's all him. That's all God. That, that thing that's happening there, that's God. Because we can't do that on our own. He uses us but it's all him. I mean, I wonder what the disciples were thinking as they followed Jesus' instructions to get this massive crowd sitting down in groups of 50, knowing all we have is five loaves and two fish. What were they thinking? They think this could be really embarrassing. You know, we're getting them to sit down. We're raising their expectation, but we've only got five loaves and two fish. Or I wonder if they were at this point now getting a, they're getting an inkling, they're getting a feeling that Jesus is going to do something. And it's going to be something beyond what they've ever witnessed before. But they they didn't know what he was going to do. They didn't know how he was going to do it. But they listened and they obeyed him anyway. Even if it made no sense to them, we're to do the same. We're called to do the same. To go out being a witness to Jesus, knowing it's impossible. Knowing people don't particularly want to hear about Jesus in our society. We're still to go out and be a witness to him anyway. In his power. We're to be intentional about bringing the kingdom and the supernatural power of God, his healing, his peace, his joy, his freedom into the lives of others, knowing we're completely unqualified for that. That we don't know what will happen when we step out like that. It's going to take a miracle, but going and doing it anyway. That is when Jesus can work through his people. As God said to the Apostle Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So we've got to recognise our own powerlessness first. And know that it's all him. It's all him, but he still calls us to play our part. But the second key principle here is that we've got to put everything we do have into his hands. Put everything we have into his hands. See, Jesus took this pitiful offering that the disciples brought. It's all they could muster up, five loaves and two fish. They gave him everything they had, as small as it was. 
and he blessed it, and then he gave it back to them to give away. And this incredible miracle of multiplication happened. And this, this principle, this is something that's kept me going, really has kept me going. At times when I have felt particularly weary and weak and completely at the end of myself, that conviction of the enabling and multiplying power of Jesus, that he can take even our weakest and most despondent efforts and use them to bear fruit. Because in the hands of Jesus, the insufficient becomes more than sufficient in his hands. I mean, 12 basketfuls left over. 12 basketfuls picked up. What, what's that about? Why 12 basketfuls? I don't know. Maybe he wanted the disciples to each have a doggy bag. Who knows? But what it does speak of is the abundance of Jesus. The abundance and lasting, ongoing provision of Jesus. You see, with the manna that God provided in the wilderness, you couldn't keep leftovers because it rotted if you tried to keep leftovers. But here with Jesus, there is abundance. There are leftovers. They all ate till they're completely satisfied. They're completely filled up. And then there's even more on top of that. It's his ongoing, abundant, lasting provision. So how do we put everything in his hands? How do we actually do that? Well, I think prayer is a really key part of this. Prayer is essential. The very act of prayer is a recognition of our own inadequacy and our utter need of God's power. And I haven't got time to go into a lot of detail on this. I spoke about the importance of prayer on our Vision Sunday in September, so you can listen to that on the website. But if we want to see God move, if I'm convinced of this, if we want to see multiplication, we must pray. We must pray. You know, the one common factor that emerges from all the uh, studies and analysis done on various movements around the world, disciple-making movements that have seen genuine gospel explosive growth, you know, genuine multiplication of disciples, which is what we want to see here. The one common factor, it's not a model, it's not a particular way of doing things and try and import that and do it here. No, no, the one common factor is where people, where the church, have got into extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary, and what is extraordinary prayer? It's ordinary prayer with a bit extra. Just going a bit further in prayer, lingering in prayer, praying just that little bit more, and we've been trying to increase our level of prayer over the last few years. You know, we've been trying to increase our prayer in the church. I'm so grateful to that faithful group of people who turn out every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Uh, and to those who fast on the first Wednesday of the month again, as we heard, opportunity to do that again this Wednesday. Uh, we've got our prayer week coming up again, as, as Nicola said earlier. Um, and I'd encourage everybody to be involved because it's so easy to be involved. You know, I know that none of us thinks we're very good at prayer. That's all of us. Nobody thinks, nobody thinks they're great at prayer. Everybody struggles a bit with prayer. Everybody, there are barriers to prayer that make it easier sometimes to give up rather than pray. I know all that. That's why I've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to be involved. So there really is no excuse. Be involved. Sign up for an hour in that week. It's just an hour. Sign up so we're covering all that time with prayer. Be involved in prayer if you believe that prayer works, if you believe that prayer is powerful. I'd encourage you to be involved. And... Wednesday morning prayer, okay, I know that the timing of that meeting doesn't work for everybody, I get it, we, you, can't, you can never find a time that works for everybody, people are maybe getting kids ready for school or they go out to work at a particular time, I know that, but if I may, one observation from those prayer meetings is that the average age is some way north of 60, and I, again I say I'm so grateful for those prayer warriors who are there every week praying for our church, praying for our nation, praying for our town, praying for God's kingdom to come. 
absolutely fantastic. It's a powerhouse. So I would call it the engine room of the church. But a gentle challenge, a gentle challenge to younger generations. My generation, younger generations, come on. You might not be able to do it every week, that's okay. But be involved. The opportunity's there. It's far easier praying with others than praying on your own, I tell you. The opportunity's there. We need you. We need the church to be praying. I know that, I know that revivals can start because two old ladies pray. You hear the stories from the Hebrides and revivals. I know that can happen, but I think we, we're called to pray as a church. So let's pray. So we're to put everything we have and everything we are into his hands, as weak as we may feel. Our resources, our finances, which are really his resources and his finances, put them into his hands. Are they surrendered to him to be used as he directs? If someone were to look at your bank statements, would it paint a picture of someone whose finances are surrendered to God? And we'll come to the subject of stewardship in a few weeks. Our careers, our gifts, our talents, those things that God has given them, put them in Jesus' hands. Submit them to him, for him to bless so that you can bring glory to him through them in whatever way he directs. Whatever he has given you, whatever he has put in your hands, put it in his hands and say, Lord, bless this and show me how to use it for your glory. And actually, it's our whole lives. We're to submit our whole lives into his hands. And all of that primarily comes back to obedience to living life in the way that Jesus tells us to live, even when that is difficult, even when that goes against uh, the prevailing culture, which, let's face it, is most of the time. Are you known for your honesty and your integrity in the workplace? Are you known for that? Are you known for your generosity to others? Are you fleeing from sexual immorality, or are you compromising? Are you forgiving others as Jesus tells us to? Or are you, are you holding grudges and speaking badly about people? Are you casting your anxieties on him in prayer? Or are you worrying instead of trusting? Does your life look any different from anybody else's in the world? Does your life speak of a complete trust in Jesus and in a God of power? We're to put our lives in his hands, our whole lives, everything in his hands and trust him with it. And we can trust him. That's one thing I'm completely certain of. We can trust him with everything because he's so for us. Why would we hold anything back from Jesus, the one who gave everything for us? See, in this story, Jesus blessed and he broke. He blessed the bread and the fish and he broke it and gave it out. Just as he did at the Last Supper with his disciples, he blessed the bread, he gave thanks for it, and then he broke it and gave it out and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he did it for real on the cross. As he's being crucified, he blessed. He blesses his enemies. Lord, uh, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He blesses them. And then Jesus, the bread of life himself, was broken. As your substitute, in your place, in my place. Because you know, for bread to feed you, for bread to nourish you, it has to be broken. It has to be broken. If Jesus, the bread of life, had not been broken, if he'd stayed whole... You and me, we would have been broken to pieces. But he was broken so that we could be whole. That we can trust him. He's the most trustworthy person we have. We can trust him with everything. We can put everything in his hands. We can obey him, his instructions, even when they don't make sense to us. And even in, and especially in, our weakness. And in our lack of understanding. And just see what he does through us. So let me finish where I started the world has changed, and the world is changing. 
But we don't need to panic about that. We don't need to be afraid of that because we serve the sovereign God who is in control. He's above it all. That's who we serve. And you know, quite apart from the pandemic that we've been going through, actually, we've been going through some pretty rapid cultural change in our society anyway for the last few years. You know, uh, views, perspectives on gender, sexuality, all sorts of issues. Some of it positive change, but much of it driven by a, a godless agenda. But I've heard it described as being like we're going through cultural convulsions, such as the speed of change. We're going through cultural convulsions. It's, it's a world that you wouldn't recognize from 10 years ago. You wouldn't recognize this world. Last time we went through cultural convulsions like this was probably in the 1960s. But what followed those cultural convulsions of the 1960s in this nation? Well, what followed was that there was an explosion of new churches like ours that looked and felt a bit different from the established church which had got a bit lifeless, a bit stale. But these churches, these new churches, didn't arise through compromising with the truth and trying to fit in with culture. Quite the opposite. It was like a rediscovery of the truth and the power of God's word and the power of his spirit. Word and spirit that filled the emptiness, it filled the vacuum that was left by a a culture, a society, by a nation that turned its back on God and his values. The church grew pretty explosively, actually. And so we need to be looking out for what God is doing in our day, in our society, but also in the church, and not be afraid of change, not be afraid of the new things he wants to do, not be afraid of the new ways that he might want to shape us. And I just finish on this picture. We have in our front garden, we've got this really big rose bush. It is pretty big. And uh, it's got a bit out of shape. And um, there, there are a couple of branches, two, three, four branches sticking out at the top that have got a lot longer than the rest of the branches. And actually, those branches sticking out the top, they had a lot of good roses on them, even into November when the rest of the bush had gone bare. These branches had good roses on them. But here's the thing. I know that those branches, along with all the branches, the whole bush, will need to be pruned. And the rose bush will need to be reshaped for it to flower in every direction, from every branch, in the summer and in the, in the spring. And the times that we're going through at the moment, the times we're going through as a church, kind of feel like pruning. And pruning can feel really, really painful. But ultimately, pruning is about growth. It's about strengthening. It's about consolidating, putting roots down further. And ultimately, it's about multiplying because it results in better and more and better growth in the fruit and the flowers or whatever it is that is being produced in the long term. And as a church, I want us to be like that rose bush that is strong at its core. The rosebush that is flowering and growing in every direction, from every branch, multiplying, reaching out, surrounding and saturating this town with the love of Jesus. That's what God is calling us to be. So let us submit ourselves and our church to God in prayer. Let's be a church that prays, devoted to prayer. Let us be courageous, a people of courage. Let us be obedient. Let us look for opportunities for his kingdom to come. And partner with him and cooperate with him in everything. And let us put everything that we have and everything that we are in his hands. It's more important than anything else. Let's put everything in his hands. Because when we are weak, his strength works through us. And we can trust him. We can trust him to do more than we could ever ask or ever imagine. Because he is the God of miracles. He is the God of multiplication. The government is on his shoulders and not on ours. 
and we need to keep him at the center. Let's keep Jesus at the center of our lives, at the center of our church, at the center of our vision as we head on into this new year of 2022. Amen.